What's going on, guys? Welcome to episode seven of the Strength Matrix podcast. My name is Josh Setledge. I am the BJJ Strength Coach. And today we're going to be talking about the best recovery methods to help enhance your jujitsu and wrestling training. Now, recovery is one of the most important things when it comes to designing a proper training program, when it comes to prepping for competition, when it comes to just being better in any physical extravaganza or any physical endeavor that you embark on. Using these unique recovery methods will allow you to not only train harder and more often, but at a higher quality as well. We're going to be going over how you can begin adding these recovery methods into your weekly training practices, ultimately to help your overall grappling performance. Before we dive into it, do need to let you know that this episode, just like every other episode, is brought to you by thestrengthmatrix.com. This is my site that I created ultimately to help grappling athletes roll harder on the mat, lift smarter in the gym, win more matches, and get injured less. It's time to take all the misinformation, confusion, and BS about how to actually train the right way for jujitsu, and it's time to start delivering sound strength and conditioning education, training programs, and resources to the jujitsu athletes like yourself who need them in order to ultimately win more matches, and get injured less. And if you're interested in getting started, I have a free four-week strength program that I would love to send you. There's no strings attached. You can just click the link in the description of this podcast episode, download that free four-week program, start training, and be on your way. I'd love to be able to help you out. If that's something you're interested in, just click the link in the description below of this podcast episode. And without further ado, let's dive right into it. So when we start talking about recovery, we need to first determine what does it mean to recover? Now, remember, it's not about what you do in the gym or on the mat. It's only about what you can recover from that allows you to actually make progress in the gym and on the mat. Recovery is essentially any practice that allows your body to run through the various cycles and processes it needs to in order to repair muscle, make adaptations to training, and ultimately leave you feeling prepared to train again. Recovery can look like all sorts of different things, sleeping more, eating better, cold tubs, sauna, uh, massage therapy. There's literally an endless line of recovery techniques and methods that you could use, but what ultimately is determined as a viable and effective recovery method is if it allows you to recover from training, repair muscle tissue, help you make better adaptations to training, and ultimately leaving you feeling prepared to train again. So recovery metrics are something that we would use to determine, okay, how well are you actually recovering? There's a lot, there's some metrics that you could use that are very effective and accurate. There's also some recovery method or I'm sorry, recovery metrics that you could look at that. Yeah, they may give you a good sense on if you're recovered or not, but you also may just be psyching yourself out or um, it just may be inaccurate data that you are going off of. But Regardless, we need to have some sort of system to monitor and track recovery so that way we can actually know what we're doing. You, know, you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been, and that which gets measured actually gets improved upon. So some recovery metrics that you could look at 
for men are going to be waking up feeling springy or uh, if you want to call this the boner test. Uh, If you're a guy and you're waking up every morning with a heart on, that's awesome. That's a great sign that you're probably recovered. One of the clearest signs that you're not recovering or that you are under recovering is if you're having decreases in testosterone and you're no longer waking up fully fully rested and recovered and without a boner. So that's one of those subjective metrics that is a good sign, but maybe not the most accurate sign. But if you're waking up with boners every morning, guys, that's a good sign that you're probably recovered and ready to train hard something that's a little bit more consistent, not just across genders, but also a little bit more consistent for every individual is going to be to track your resting heart rate upon waking up. So this is going to take a little bit of time for you to build up a good source of data for you to go off of. But first thing when you wake up in the morning, check your resting heart rate. You could do that with a smart device. You could do that with um, an app on your phone or your Apple watch. You could do that. There's a a thing called a blood oximeter. You just put it on your finger, test the oxygen levels of your blood and your pulse rate. You can use that as well. But essentially checking your resting heart rate over a long period of time is a great way for you to monitor recovery because when you're under recovered or your body is a lot more fatigued from training and not necessarily ready or prepared to do hard training again, you're gonna see your resting heart rate actually spike. So say your average resting heart rate is 60 beats per minute. One morning you wake up, it's at 59. The next morning you wake up, it's at 61. The following morning, it's at 60. You're pretty consistent, and that's a good sign that you haven't had any huge spikes per se in your ability to uh, not recover properly. You're recovering at a good clip or at a good pace. So you you know monitor that over several weeks, and then one week, you start waking up and it's like, geez, I'm at like 68, 70 on one day, 69 on another day. That's a good sign that because you've had a big spike in your resting heart rate, that you're probably under recovered and may not be best prepared to go through a uh, maximum intensity training session for that day. Another test that you could use that is also measurable and something that you could collect a lot of data on and compare that to, um, just make comparisons to over the course of the long run is going to be a grip strength test. They have these grip strength ergometers, I guess is what you would call them, or these grip strength uh, measurement machines where basically you squeeze this handle as hard as you can. That's a good test for you to see like, okay, every day I'm able to get, um, let's make it simple, like 50 pounds of pressure. So every day when I'm feeling good, I can get 50 pounds of pressure. Then you show up to the gym one day, and you can only get 30 pounds of pressure. That may be a sign that you're under-recovered or that you're a little bit more fatigued from training and you may not be in your best physical state to perform at your absolute best. Something very similar to that could be a broad jump. So you do your normal warm-up and then you hit your max broad jump. Record that data over the course of several weeks. If you're unable to get within, say, 90 to 95% of your max broad jump every single day, that may be a sign that you're a little under-recovered as well. Now, there's something else that we could look at when it comes to heart rate, and that's going to be heart rate variability. Heart rate variability is very different than just your resting heart rate, which is tracking your beats per minute. Heart rate variability is actually a a type of software that measures the variance in the time between beats. So uh, when you have a heartbeat, it sounds like dum-dum, dum-dum, dum-dum. It's a little rhythmic. And the first dump 
that time between the first dump and the second dump, if you will, heart rate variability, heart rate variability, excuse me, tracks the time between those two beats and the time from full heartbeat to full heartbeat. So the dump times that space, the dump. And so when it's doing it, what it's doing essentially is tracking the variability between all of those things. And it's going to be able to put all that timing and those variances in a formula, which gives you a reading on how well prepared you are to train for the day. So it is a little bit more expensive, but at least nowadays it's getting cheaper and cheaper to get access to heart rate variability. I think I want to say it's built into a lot of smartwatches, which is absolutely crazy. When I was in high school and I first heard about heart rate variability, I tried to get one, uh, not realizing that I was like, oh, geez, I probably should hold off on this because it was the technology and the machine that you would use for heart rate variability, heart rate variability was thousands of dollars. Um, and now you can just get it built into your smartwatch, which is pretty cool. So, and then last, but certainly not least, we just have, how are you feeling mentally? Are you mentally excited and fired up to train? This one I think is arguably one of the more important signs of recovery because a lot of times people can just psych themselves out getting too caught up in the data of like, oh, my heart rate variability told me I'm not ready to train today. And maybe, maybe, maybe that's true. But if you didn't know that your heart rate variability was in the red zone telling you you shouldn't train hard today, how were you feeling before you found that out? Were you feeling excited and just really looking forward to go to the gym or really looking forward to go to jujitsu or wrestling practice? Sometimes just being more mentally excited to train is a great sign that's like, look, I'm excited to train today. So we're going to push it. We're going to go dig deep. We're going to go hard in the paint today. And that can pay off for you a little bit better in the long run compared to being too caught up into the measurements and the data of all these things I just listed. I'm not saying that you should only go off of how you feel mentally because it works both ways. There could be days where mentally you feel fatigued, mentally you feel tired, but physically you could definitely do a lot more than you think you're capable of and vice versa. You can feel great. You can feel awesome, super excited, but physically your body is telling you like, look, dog, we should probably uh, cool off for a minute. So I think you need a good balance of both on balancing recovery metrics, some that are, are a little bit more subjective based off of feel, and some that are a little more objective based off of actual results and data that you can collect. Some signs that you're, you're actually under-recovered are going to be feeling sluggish or slow. Guys, if you aren't waking up with boners in the morning, um, your resting heart rate spikes, which we already talked about, you're having inconsistent heart rate variability readings, your grip strength test results are low, your broad jump tests results are low, and you're having this overwhelming sense of feeling mentally fatigued and burnt out. Um, essentially, the opposite of what we just mentioned was uh, feeling good and ready and recovered to train hard. So we've talked about how we can track recovery, and I encourage all of you guys listening to this to pick one to three of those things and start measuring those and paying attention to those over the course of the next, say, four to eight weeks. Start tracking your resting heart rate every morning. You don't need to do anything with it just yet. You don't need to make any big changes to your training based off of what you get um, as far as those readings go for the first eight weeks, but build up a database, if you will, on some of these metrics that I talked about, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, uh, max grip strength, uh, HR, or I already mentioned that HRV, 
max broad jump. You can also do a maximum vertical jump as well. Um, but sometimes I think with vertical jump, because if you're doing one of those vertical jumps where you have to jump and reach, um, sometimes those can be a little, in my opinion, uh, if you want to call it inconsistent, uh, based off of arm length and how well someone can learn the skill of reaching up with that one hand. If you have a vertical jump tester, which measures the time that you're actually in the air, that would actually be a little bit more accurate. But regardless, you pick two or three of these metrics to you know, record on yourself and measure over the next four to eight weeks. That way you can build up a solid database for you to reflect back on as you continue through with training and can actually track your ability to recover from hard training. So we talked about how to measure recovery. Now we need to talk about the best recovery methods. The first thing that we need to talk about is sleep. Sleep is the number one best recovery method. If you are doing ice baths and sauna work and red light therapy and going to a massage therapist to get massage work done and seeing your physio and all those things, but you're not sleeping, you can miss me with all that BS. Sleep is the number one most effective way for you to recover from hard training. And I fully understand that sleep can sometimes even be the hardest one to manage from a recovery standpoint because you work a lot or you got kids or there's all these other reasons why people like to say they can't focus on sleep a little bit more. But trust me, if you want to be a high level athlete, or if you just want to feel better and perform better, sleep is going to be the number one method that you could use to improve recovery. You should be looking to get seven to eight hours of sleep each and every single night. That is a tall order, but just takes a little bit of discipline before bed and being disciplined all throughout the day. So you actually are better prepared to sleep for seven to eight hours. Some things that'll help you sleep um, and help improve your overall quality of sleep are gonna be to limit blue light exposure two hours before bedtime. So now when we're uh, in an age where we have all these screens around us, computer screens, TV screens, phone screens, they emit this blue LED light, which the receptors in our eyes and our brain, it perceives that as sunlight or in a very similar way as it would perceive sunlight if you were walking outside. And so late at night when it's dark outside and you, your body should naturally be starting to wind down a little bit and be prepared for sleep, the more blue light exposure that you have, the more your body's thinking like, oh, it's not nighttime right now. We should still be asleep. And it's going to decrease the production of melatonin and it's going to increase the production of all the chemicals that are used to help keep you awake, help keep you alert, and all of that stuff. So if you're on your phone in bed or if you're watching TV in bed or watching a movie before bed, that can actually negatively impact your ability to fall into a deeper sleep, sleep longer, and negatively impact your overall sleep quality. So limit blue light exposure two hours before bed. Um, I have these blue light blocking glasses that I put on in case my wife and I are watching you know, a little bit of TV before bed. I'm not saying that you shouldn't watch TV before bed because I definitely, I freaking love movies. I, I sometimes just want to start a podcast talking about movies. So sometimes my, my wife and I are watching a movie before we go to bed. And if we are, that's okay, just do whatever you can to help limit blue light exposure. We don't do that every night. We do that maybe one or two nights a week. Um, we try to watch movies during the day as much as we can, especially on the weekends. But wear some blue light blocking glasses. If it's during the week where you're focused on work, focused on training, just don't watch TV, just don't watch movies. One thing I actually did um, recently, which has helped a ton with my sleep, is I just stopped watching TV by myself. I told myself like, you know what, for 
the next month, and this I did this I think back in February, and I'm, I've still been doing it. Uh, but I told myself for the next month I'm not going to watch any TV by myself. If it's late at night, my wife is gone, and I want to watch TV before I go to bed, I'm going to choose to read a book instead. And making that adjustment and just watching so much less TV, so many amazing things have happened as far as my sleep quality improving. But ultimately, at the same time, too, I just really stopped giving a crap about TV. All these TV shows that I was really hooked on and like super excited for, I just stopped caring and uh, saved me a lot of time and uh, effort. to watch some of those things and stay up to date on those. So I'm not saying that's what you need to do, but it is something that helped me out. Uh, my wife and I do watch TV together a couple nights a week, and we do watch movies together. So I'm not getting rid of my TV per se or getting rid of my uh, Netflix account per se, but um, am watching a lot less TV, and it's helped with my sleep. Something else you can do is to have your last meal one to two hours before bedtime. If you're having a big meal, sometimes all of that digestion can negatively impact your quality of sleep. Uh, When it comes to your actual bedroom, keep your room as cool as possible. It's way better to keep your room as cold as possible and have a few extra blankets and layers than having your room too warm and having to try to constantly find new ways to get rid of layers. Make your room as dark as possible. Get blackout curtains, close the blinds, try to cover up any light sources that are in, uh, in your room. You want to make your room as dark as possible. And the other thing that's very important is to limit stimulating content one to two hours before bed. Uh, a good example and a story on this is um, I watched, so like I said, I, I freaking love movies. I will always watch movies. I will always be a huge fan of movies. It's outside of uh, lifting weights and jujitsu. It's probably my third biggest passion in the world is movies. And when the movie Uncut Gems by the Safdie Brothers um, starring Adam Sandler came out, I didn't, wasn't able to see it or I don't I can't remember if it came out on Netflix right away or if it came out in theaters, but I was a little late to the party. I didn't watch it right when it dropped. And so, uh, someone told me, they're like, you got to watch this movie, bro. It's, it's crazy. It's so good. So it was a little late. I had finished my work for the day. Jujitsu training was done. I was like, okay, I'm going to watch this movie. And that movie is essentially an anxiety, a, a two-hour anxiety attack the entire time. It is so fast-paced and is so um, stressful to watch. Um, It's a great movie, but it is so incredibly stressful to watch that by the end of it, by the time I went to bed, I could still feel my heart rate just at an absolutely ballistic pace just pulsing in my ears. It was was way too stimulating to watch right before bed is basically what I'm trying to say. So do the best you can to limit stimulating content one to two hours before bed. If you're going to watch a little bit of TV, that's totally fine and wind down with the wifey or your girl. That's, that's cool. Just limit the stimulating content as best you can. If you're going to read something or you're going to listen to a podcast, try to listen to something that's not so stimulating and gradually give your body some time and especially your mind some time to wind down and relax a little bit more. Something that I'm listening to right now is Batman Unburied, which is a audio podcast. It's like a audio story or audio show, um, on Spotify. It's basically an audio comic book and, uh, it's freaking amazing. They have awesome voice actors and the production value is great, but that's like, it's just a fun, low key fictional story that I can listen to that helps me just kind of like relax and chill out for the day. It's not all this, uh, 
information and education stuff that I'm trying to take notes on while I'm walking and listening to it, or it's not super stimulating in the sense that it's a deep conversation where I really have to think about it. It's just something I can just shut my mind off and kind of listen as I go on my last walk of the day, chill out a little bit and, you know, help my mind relax a little bit more. Other things you can do to help improve your quality of sleep would be to spend a little bit of time focused on your mobility. Uh, spending time on a foam roller or a lacrosse ball is going to help stimulate your parasympathetic nervous system, which is a nervous system associated with rest and recovery. That's another great thing that you can do before bed. Um, I do this every night, take about 10 to 15 minutes to work on some mobility stuff. Just spending time on the foam roller, rolling out anything that feels a little bit tight or a little bit sore from the training that day. Something else I like to do is have sleepy time tea. I don't, I can't even remember the name of the brand that I use, but if you just go to Winco or Trader Joe's or Costco, I think you can even order it off Amazon, but you just get sleepy time tea. It's just tea with all these different herbs and spices in there that'll help you relax a little bit more. And it does feel nice to drink something warm and soothing right before bed. Occasionally, I don't do this every night, but probably two, maybe three nights a week, I'll have a CBD THC edible. Uh, these edibles are specifically designed to help improve overall sleep quality. The THC helps you fall asleep a little bit faster and the CBD helps you stay asleep and improve your overall quality of sleep. Um, I think there is so much horse crap, to be honest, surrounded CBD products and all the benefits that people claim that they have. But for me personally, one thing that I have found that has definitely helped improve my quality of sleep is consuming some form of CBD. And then the added bonus of a little bit of THC in there uh, works as well. The edibles I use, I believe, are a five to one CBD to THC ratio. Um, I don't know for certain the THC level is pretty low, uh, at least for me. I'm a lightweight when it comes to that stuff. But every once in a while, I'll use one of those edibles to help me continue to just relax right before it's time to go to bed, feel in a little bit more calm state, and just ultimately have it be a little bit easier for me to fall asleep. Now, the next most important thing that we need to talk about when it comes to recovery is your nutrition. Sleep is where your body is rebuilt. Sleep is where your body goes through all the processes necessary to start repairing muscle damage, to start um, just rebuilding itself so that way you can come back better the next day. You stack that over the course of several weeks. That's actually how you're going to make progress. But even while your body's sleeping, your body needs fuel to be able to sustain all of those processes. And that's why nutrition is the second most important thing when it comes to recovery. When you're looking to be an athlete, when you're looking to really any sort of goal that you have for yourself and for your body, a good metric to go off of is just to consume one gram of protein per pound of body weight. It's a safe standard that almost everybody can get behind. There's so many different camps of some people saying, no, it should be 0.7 grams. No, it should be 1.2 grams per kilogram. It's like, okay, a lot of that is just kind of not here nor there. So I just keep it simple and say, hey, one gram per pound of body weight. Some of you may be asking, well, what about one gram per pound of lean body mass? You can do that too, but if you're 30 pounds overweight, I think it's better to be overeating on protein than per se overeating on carbs and fat. Protein is more satiating. Protein has a higher thermogenic effect. Um, basically, that means that your body is going to spend more energy in breaking down those protein molecules, and it's going to you're going to be able to feel more full eating more protein than opposed to eating just more carbs and fats. 
my recommendations for carbs and fats are going to vary. That's going to be something that's going to be dependent for each person. Uh, But protein is pretty consistent. One gram per pound of body weight. That's a good uh, just baseline amount of protein for you to consume. That way your body has all the nutrients it's, it's that it needs to be able to rebuild muscle, recover from training, and so that you can continue making progress in the right direction. You need to be consistent with your nutrition. There's two keys to discipline, preparation and consistency. And you need to be disciplined in your nutritional protocols so that way you can continue making progress on the mat and in the gym. So means you need to be prepared to consume those uh, grams of protein and you need to be consistent. If you have one gram per pound of body weight of protein on Monday, but then you have like 0.3 to 0.4 grams of protein Tuesday through Wednesday, you're not doing yourself any favors and it's going to be detrimental to your performance in the long run. So be consistent, be prepared, stay disciplined with it. If you're doing multiple training sessions in a day, you need to pay attention to your post-workout nutrition and your pre-workout nutrition. So if you're doing, say, lifting, and then a couple hours later, you're going to jujitsu, it's important that after that lifting session, you start to replenish those nutrients that were used during your lifting session. That way, when you go to jujitsu, you're feeling good, you're prepared and ready to have a great session. Post-workout, you should have about 25 grams of easily digestible protein, 25 grams of easily digestible carbohydrates, have some salt, and if it's in the morning before 12 p.m., you can even mix in a little bit of caffeine in there as well. Caffeine has been shown to increase your body's ability to absorb carbohydrates and deliver those carbohydrates to the muscle and help replenish glycogen stores. Glycogen is the compound in the muscle that kind of acts as the gas or uh, the fuel that you need to have a good training session. If you go into the gym and you get a crazy pump, that's often the result of increased blood flow and your muscle just pumping tons of Uh, just pumping or contracting a lot, getting full of blood. And that process is sustained by muscle glycogen uh, in the, or glycogen in the muscle. So just to review post-workout, if you're doing multiple sessions in a day for after the first workout, 25 grams of protein, 25 grams of carbs, get some salt in there to help replenish your electrolytes. And if it's in the morning, you can consume a little bit of caffeine in there as well. Talking about hydration, hydration is super important. If uh, Just try not drinking any water for a day and seeing how well you can train. Obviously, water is very important. Um, but to help with recovery, what I would suggest with hydration is just drink enough water until your urine is pretty clear. Um, you don't want to water load yourself and just be pissing like crazy. But if your urine is dark yellow or even just straight yellow, you could probably stand to drink a little bit more water. I try to drink enough water so that my urine is essentially clear or maybe a slight tint of yellow. Another thing I do is I drink 28 to 32 ounces of water first thing in the morning. That way, you know, after you sleep, you are going to be a little dehydrated. You expend a lot of water uh, through your breath when you're sleeping. And if it's hot and you sweat at night, you also lose a, little, a lot of water that way as well. So you're waking up already in a dehydrated state. So to help your body to recover and continue the recovery process, try to rehydrate as soon as you wake up, drinking 28 to 32 ounces of water. Now let's talk about supplements. Supplements will not replace a sound diet. Supplements are well, it's in the name, supplements. They are supplements that you add to an already well-designed and well-structured nutritional protocol. 
these supplements are not going to do anything magical for you. They're not going to make or break your training. They're not going to make or break your performance, but they will greatly impact your ability to recover. So if we look at sleep if on a scale of one to a hundred, right? hundred is like the best performance you've ever had to date. Sleep is going to account for arguably 70% of your ability to perform well. Nutrition is going to account for arguably 25% of your ability to perform well. So you already have 95% of your ability to perform well tied up in sleep and nutrition. Supplements are going to account for maybe 1 to 3%. 3% is even arguable. Um, if you're taking some scrupulous supplements um, that we won't talk, if you're taking PEDs essentially is what I'm referring to as supplements, that is definitely going to have a much greater effect on your recovery. But I'm just talking your run-of-the-mill basic supplements that everybody can take, no problem. So vitamins, minerals, all that stuff. So the supplements that you should be taking to help with your recovery, first one's going to be vitamin D, one of the best vitamins you can take ever. It's going to help with recovery, brain health, hair, bone, nail health, um, help with significantly increase the strength of your immune system, which is freaking huge. So vitamin D. Now, vitamin K is going to help your body's ability to absorb vitamin D. So I often take vitamin D and vitamin K together. I would suggest you guys do the same. I also would suggest taking vitamin C as grappling athletes, it's very important that we do everything we can to strengthen our immune system. If, you know, I mean, we're in a sweaty wrestling room or sweaty jujitsu room, uh, rolling around with a bunch of people, swapping sweat um, multiple times per week. So there's definitely going to be some funky stuff that's floating around in the air. And it's important that our immune system is as strong as it possibly can be. So vitamin D is going to help with that. Vitamin K helps with the absorption of vitamin D. Vitamin C also helps with the uh, strength of our immune system. Now, because we are sweating so much, it's very important that we also are paying attention to our electrolyte levels. It's not enough to just drink tons of water. I did that for a long time and I made a lot of mistakes and it ended up costing me in the long run. If you just drink a ton of water, which is a great idea, like I'm not telling you don't drink enough water, but if you only drink water, you're not going to be getting all the benefits of being fully hydrated. You need to drink plenty of water and make sure you have a balanced electrolyte profile. Electrolytes are going to be the other minerals and uh, vitamins that are part or I guess there's no vitamins and electrolytes, but definitely minerals. Uh, they're going to be the minerals and substances that are going to help your body perform its best, especially when you're doing a high intensity activity. Um, a common example that I find with athletes who have low electrolyte balances when they go into training is that they start cramping up a lot. If you've ever started cramping up, trying to squeeze on a triangle choke, or if you ever felt like your feet or uh, your forearms are cramping up at jujitsu, that could be a sign that you actually need to be A, more hydrated, and B, improve your electrolyte intake. I use two primary electrolyte supplements, the first one being Noon Tablets, N-U-U-N. These are just little tablets that you can get off Amazon or at the store. You just drop them in water, they dissolve. They taste pretty good, and they're not too salty. But they have, uh, they're just packed with electrolytes and just allow you to drink more water, get in plenty of electrolytes, make sure you're not cramping up during training. The other one I use 
is LMNT or Element. Uh, that's actually one of my favorite ones they have. It is a little bit saltier, but I do feel that they are packed with more electrolytes. So before when I would use like two noon tablets throughout the day, I would only need to use one electrolyte pack. Or I'm sorry, one element pack that has its electrolytes in there. So check those out, noon tablets or LMNT. The other mineral that I would suggest you guys take is magnesium. You can have this mixed in your sleepy time tea to help improve your overall quality of sleep. And then lastly, and we won't spend a whole lot of time on this one because this is probably a, a whole different episode that we can get into, is creatine. Creatine is the most studied supplement outside of protein, whey protein probably. Um, but creatine is one of the most studied supplements of all time. And what creatine does is it essentially aids in your body's ability to contract muscles more effectively. So what it's going to do is creatine is a substance that your body needs to have a forceful contraction of the muscle. If you start supplementing with creatine, your body has a little bit more creatine. Say, you know, you go for a max, an AMRAP, as many reps as possible. So you get 10 reps, start supplementing creatine and you get to 12 reps. It, are those two extra reps going to do much for you in one workout? No absolutely not. It's just two reps. It doesn't make that much of a difference. But if you add those two reps to every training session over the course of the next six to eight months, that is a ton of reps that get added to the overall training stimulus that your body makes adaptations to. And you're going to be in a little bit better position to get stronger, get faster, get more explosive, all that good stuff. I will say this about creatine. I used to be really big on supplementing creatine. Like I would never miss a day to take my five grams of creatine. And then I started eating a lot more red meat and I didn't really notice that much of a difference anymore. Main reason being I was getting as much creatine as I needed from the increase in my consumption of quality red meat. So much so that adding additional creatine didn't really do any favors for me. And I was still seeing all the great benefits of creatine, just not having to spend money at the supplement store to get some. So if you're going to take creatine, go for it. It's, you know, I would suggest that you do unless your nutritional protocol helps allows for you, or you can afford to consume lots of red meat, then you probably don't need it. Um, but you only need about five grams of creatine every day. You don't need to go through a creatine loading phase. You don't need to go through a creatine deload. At least in my opinion, you can just take five grams every day and be good to go. That's going to be it for supplements. The next thing that's going to help improve your recovery is going to be increased blood flow. So bl blood is going to be the delivery system of all the nutrients needed to help you recover. Uh, if you have an injury and it starts swelling a little bit, that is because blood is being rushed to that injury site to help the restoration and the healing process. If you are super sore after a workout, the best thing you can do to not be sore is to start pumping blood through that muscle, start warming the area up a little bit through blood flow. The blood will help start delivering the nutrients necessary to in the other blood cells and all that stuff to help the recovery process. So Increased blood flow is very important for recovery. The easiest way to do this is just through doing more 10 minute walks. I take two to three 10 to 20 minute walks every day and that has significantly helped my recovery. If you're looking for something more specific to recovery, you can do uh, actual recovery workouts where 
you go very, very, very light on a high rep exercise. Like if your triceps are super sore, you could do a few sets of 50 on tricep pushdowns. This is not to get a burn. This is not to really even get a pump, but you are going to begin. Well, it is to get a little bit of a pump, but you're not going to be like just completely swollen and, and blown up, right? But you want to get a little bit of a pump to help promote blood flow to improve recovery. Another thing that's going to help improve blood flow is just going to be doing a little bit more mobility work, which you kind of t- touched on uh, before. And then we have light GPP workouts, which these are going to be for advanced athletes only and not advanced athletes like advanced athletes in your sport of wrestling or jujitsu, but advanced athletes when it comes to uh considering them advanced in strength and conditioning if you've been strength doing strength and conditioning work dedicated quality strength and conditioning work for over a decade you may fall in that category of needing extra workouts or mini workouts to improve your ability to recover from training session to training session this is not for everybody and this is going to be a another episode on its own in the future but if you're an advanced athlete you may want to look into adding some extra workouts to improve your recovery. And then lastly, but certainly not least, we have the sauna, hot tub, and the steam room. I put this one at the end because, in my opinion, and I originally picked this up from Stan the Rhino Efforting, any recovery method that you do on your own is going to be better than something that gets done to you or something that you do to yourself. So Actively going on a 10-minute walk is going to be better for you, in my opinion. Actively going and doing some extra mobility work. Actively going and doing a mini workout. Those things are going to be better for you in terms of recovery than something like a massage or a hot tub or a sauna, which is something you just kind of sit and do, right? But they do work. So sauna, hot tub, steam room, all of those things help increase blood flow by raising your body temperature. Um... There's a lot of different resources out there and perspectives, if you will, on how long you should spend in the sauna, how long you should be in the hot tub or steam room. The way I see it is just stay in there for what is comfortable for you. I used to work at a gym a long time ago. It was like a commercial gym that had a sauna and a steam room. And what I would do after every workout was I would do 10 minutes in the sauna, 10 minutes in the steam room, take a shower. I was out. Um, I didn't stay in there for a crazy long time and like try to challenge myself to see how long I could stay in there. I was just there 10 minutes in one, walked over to the next door, 10 minutes in the other, and then I got out of there. A hot tub is a little bit different because you can, at least in my opinion, I feel like you can stay in a hot tub a lot longer than a sauna or a steam room. So sometimes my wife and I uh, at that gym, we would go in the hot tub and hang out there for like 20 or 30 minutes and then go into the pool where it's a little bit cooler and then go back to the hot tub. It's not necessarily contrast therapy, but it is a little bit of getting really warm for a minute, relaxing, getting out, cooling off for a few minutes, and then going back into the hot tub. That you can do for a longer duration of time and and shouldn't really see any issues. Um, With any of those options, sauna, hot tub, steam room, definitely make sure you're hydrated. Definitely make sure you got plenty of electrolytes. You don't want to be that guy that passes out in the steam room or the uh, hot tub. That would suck. On the opposite end of that spectrum, we have cold therapy. So cold therapy is going to be different. And there's even varying degrees of these temperature-based therapies. So 
hot tub is going to be a little bit different than a sauna, which you can make extremely hot. And when it gets to those extreme heat temperatures, your body is going to release what's known as heat shock proteins, which are proteins that your body releases in response to these extreme temperatures, which is gonna help your body recover. The same thing happens in the cold. You can take a cold shower, but it doesn't really do much for you besides just cool your overall internal body temperature off. Or you can go into a cryo chamber, which is really freaking cold, and that is going to release cold shock proteins. And so a couple different things happen when we do cold therapy, and some options for cold therapy would be an ice bath, a cryo chamber. Those are the most extreme options. You have contrast therapy, which is basically you do like take five minutes of a hot shower and then turn the dial all the way over to the coldest setting, do that for five minutes. Um, But what's happening is, you are helping decrease the inflammation in your body by significantly dropping the body temperature. And you're also constricting all the muscles. When your body gets really, really, really cold, all your muscles start to uh, constrict and start squeezing and getting really tight. And this is called vasoconstriction. This vasoconstriction will help flush out a lot of the byproducts that are left over from a hard training session and it can help you recover a little bit. I will say this though, don't do cold therapy immediately following a strength training session. This can negatively affect the inflammatory response that happens in the muscle following a strength or hypertrophy training session. You, The inflammation that you receive after a strength or hypertrophy or bodybuilding training session where you're trying to build bigger muscles, that is awesome. And we want that because the body's going to make an adaptation to that to get stronger or to build bigger muscles. And if you shut that down immediately after the workout, the body won't be as uh, inclined to make those adaptations. So what I would suggest is if you're going to do cold therapy, that's awesome. Go for it. But wait about four to six hours following your strength and conditioning session before you uh, opt for cold therapy. And again, I mentioned this at the beginning uh, or a little bit earlier, but remember what you do for recovery is always going to be more impactful and effective than that which is done to you. And so that brings us to the question, how should we begin implementing recovery into your training week? I suggest all athletes, every athlete that I work with, I make this suggestion, have at least one day where they completely take the day off training. No gym time, no mat time, literally just resting from training. Some athletes like to go outside and go for a hike or swim or do some other non-sport specific activities, which is totally fine. Walking is great for this as well. And this can be a great way to relieve stress, uh, decompress, and mentally take a break from the rigors of training. But just remember that the day should be focused on leaving you feeling better and fully prepared for the training coming up ahead. If on this day you take uh, a 10 mile hike on your recovery day and you're too fatigued to train the following day, you may need to reconsider using a 10 mile hike as part of your recovery day. You wanna make sure that this day is used as a mental rest and a physical rest. And I understand that there's a lot of people that believe that you should train every single day. Um, and I've I used to do that and I had a lot of success with that, but I have kind of changed my tune on that in my position. I think for 99% of the athletes out there, it's going to be a little bit better for your overall longevity and your overall enjoyment of training. If you just have at least one day in the week where you don't do anything, there's no training, there's no lifting, there's no rolling. You can do other non-sport specific stuff if you want, uh, but just take that time to rest and recover. 
on a daily basis, look to optimize your pre-bedtime routine to allow for you to achieve your maximum quality of sleep every night. Like I said at the beginning, sleep is the most important form of recovery that you can embark on. So it's important that on a daily basis, you do everything you possibly can to maximize your overall quality of sleep. So for example, this is my current bedtime routine. I stop work at least two hours before bedtime. Around that time as well, I also put on my blue light blocking glasses to get about two hours of non-blue light exposure. And about one hour before bed, I take my uh, take my one edible, my THC CBD edible. I take my sleepy time tea with magnesium. I take my vitamins. Some people ask me about vitamins and they say like, well, are you sure you should take that vitamin D right before you go to bed? Because, you know, it's going to be like staring at the sun right before you go to bed. I'm pretty sure it doesn't work that way. And at least for me, I haven't noticed any issues with taking my vitamins right before bed. I honestly don't think it makes a difference whether you take them first thing in the morning, at lunch, in the middle of the day, or right before bed, just as long as you take your vitamins. I try to dim around this one hour mark. I try to turn off most of the lights in the house or at least dim them as low as possible. I do about 10 to 20 minutes of mobility work and or a walk outside. In the summertime, it's really nice to, uh, at least in uh, Sacramento, it's really nice to take walks right before bed. Um, If you're in an area with a little bit different climate, I fully understand that that may not always be viable. And then after that, I brush my teeth, floss, do all that stuff. And then I like to read a comic book or a non-stimulating book until I feel my eyes begin to get heavy. And then at that point, it's time to shut it down. I put my eye mask on, put on my mouth tape, uh, kiss my wife, turn off all the lights, and we go to bed. So that's essentially my pre-bedtime routine. One thing that has helped a ton that I've been doing this year is reading comic books again. When I was a kid and in high school, I freaking loved comic books, and I'm still a huge diehard comic nerd at heart. I just didn't have as much time to spend reading comic books as opposed to the time that I was choosing to dedicate to reading strength and conditioning books, leadership books, business books, all that stuff. But now I'm reading comic books again. I'm currently reading Dune, which is a sci-fi book. It's not a comic book, but um, it is non-stimulating and fun to read because it's science fiction. So I'm reading Dune, and I'm also reading Death of the Family, which is a awesome and amazing Batman story arc that I'm a big fan of. So if you're into comic books and you're into sci-fi, check those out. That being said, that brings us to the end of episode seven of the Strength Matrix podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. This was a little bit longer episode than usual. Recovery is a huge subject. And again, one of the most important things that you can do when it comes to improving your overall performance on the mat. Remember, it's not about what you do in the gym or on the mat. It's about what you do and can recover from that actually allows you to make greater progress in jujitsu, in wrestling, or whatever endeavor you're embarking on. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you guys are interested in learning more about how you can roll harder on the mat, lift smarter in the gym, win more matches, and get injured less, I have a free gift that I would love to send you. Just click the link in the description below and you can download a free four-week strength program. You guys can follow me on Instagram at Joshua Setledge. And uh, oh, and then lastly, if you listen to this uh, podcast and you got some value from it, uh, I'm really excited to start podcasting on a more regular basis again. And I would love to uh, just be able to share this podcast out with as many grappling athletes as possible. So if you made it to this point in the podcast and you got some value from this episode and feel inclined to share on your social media, 
feel free to do so. That'd be freaking sick. Feel free to leave a five-star review and uh, like and comment, subscribe, all that good stuff. You guys can follow me on Instagram at Joshua Settledge, and I'll catch you guys later. Peace.